Welcome to the Chronic Hope Institute podcast, the only podcast designed for the families of those who are struggling with addiction and codependency. If addiction has rocked your household and you don't know where to turn to get support, then this podcast was built for you. Our host has written the book on how families can navigate the scary world of addiction. Chronic Hope, Parenting the Addicted Child, and Chronic Hope, Families and Addiction can both be found on Amazon today. We invite you to connect with us on Facebook, as well as subscribing to the Chronic Hope Institute podcast on YouTube, Spotify, Apple, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Now, here is your host, author, therapist, and CEO of the Chronic Hope Institute, Kevin Peterson. Hey, everybody. How are you doing today? It's Kevin Peterson, uh, owner and uh, founder of the Chronic Hope Institute. And here's the episode 22 of the Chronic Hope podcast. And we're going to talk about interventions with my good friend, Travis Whitaker. Travis, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thanks, Kevin. How are you? Uh, doing fantastic. I, we're having a little bit of a role reversal. We said earlier, you're in sunny Utah and I'm in rainy, cloudy, awful Jacksonville Beach, Florida. I can't oh, figure it geez. out. <laughs> I know it's just terrible, isn't it? It's just awful. Um, so, hey, gang, it's good to have everybody here on Monday, uh, you know, December 20th. Oh, my gosh, we're almost at the end of the year. Which, by the way, tends to be that kind of that time of year when Travis and I start to get super duper busy. Um, so I thought it'd be a good time to talk about interventions and what that looks like and how and why. And and before we get started, um, I would I was hoping Travis, you could share a little bit with us uh, of your own personal journey in recovery. Um, and and you know our podcast is is designed to help the family members and the loved ones of addicts mm -hmm. and alcoholics and people that are struggling. So I think it's really important that they understand that, that, that people like you and I, we do this, you know, uh, out of a sense of responsibility and duty and out of a sense of our own personal journey. So, so tell us about you a little bit. Yeah. So in April, um, I'll be coming up on 13 years of, uh, Ooh. sobriety, which, uh, you know, it's just an absolute blessing. And, you know, what I want to do is kind of continue to pay that forward. I suffered for almost 13 years uh, from an opioid addiction. You know, I hurt my back playing basketball and, you know, went to the doctor and, you know, started getting things prescribed to me. It was first, you know, Percocet and Loratap. And then in about 1995, 96, um, this drug came out that was for cancer patients that had this, uh, you know, extended release that was called Oxycontin, as all of us mm. know. And, uh, you know, that's what I ended up getting addicted to for many, many years. My life became out of control. Um, you know, I got arrested for doctor shopping, overdosed multiple times, car wrecks, lying, stealing, and really just hurting my family dynamics, um, you know, from what I was putting them through, putting the kids through. I was causing a lot of trauma for them. And uh, then in April uh, 19th of 2009, I had a, uh, a car wreck. I had taken uh, probably about, I had two prescriptions. The, the pharmacy messed up and gave me 240 Xanax. And I took all of them over a four day period and uh, got behind the wheel of a car and rolled it. And Jaws of Life took me out. And I had an out of body experience in the hospital where I was actually looking down at my body and uh, I get smacked in the back of the head and it's my guardian angel 
you know, giving me three choices while they're getting ready to use the, uh, um, you know, the pumps to bring me back to life. And he says, you got three choices. You need to choose one death because I'm, I'm exhausted from trying to keep you alive Two, you're going to make horrible decisions. You're going to end up in prison or I'm going to allow you to die right here. And of course I chose recovery. And, uh, that's the only thing I remember about that whole incident. And I've been sober since. Wow. That's a miracle. Uh, that's yeah. absolutely amazing. And, you know, I, I, I thank you for sharing that. And, um, you know, I, I, I look back on my own journey of recovery and, and I, I love the term that you use the guardian angels, cause I've had a series of guardian angels in my life as well. Um, yeah. you know, spiritual and, and physical that people, that people that have shown up and said, here's the deal. I'm going to help you, but you got to step up, you know? Yeah. And, and, yeah. and, it's made it, it's absolutely i mean one was my father who passed away this last july but in august of 1990 he was like you're my only son and i love you but this is over we're done right you know, we, we yeah. can't participate like this anymore and and you know the and I, the irony is at the same time because <clears throat> like our podcast is really about the family engagement is that my mom was mm -hmm. a prescription drug addict as well and and so we had that centerpiece to our family so I, I, when you were talking about the painkillers and the oxys and the opiates, that's something that my mom struggled with as well. Yeah. So I, I'm very yeah, grateful. Dad, that you said that. Yeah. My dad yeah. died of a drug overdose and alcoholism. My uncle died of alcoholism. And then we'd get into the death by suicide, several family members death by suicide. So this is real, yeah. um, you know, and, and we get to provide hope and help. And that's, you know, truly why I believe I've, you know, been, uh, allowed to continue that and also be the dad I didn't have, you know? And that's, that's a powerful motivator right there. You know, yep, absolutely. So, so how did, how did this journey, Travis, lead you into uh, the jobs that you have now? I mean, tell us about the jobs that you have and then, but also tell us how your recovery journey led you into the jobs that you have today. Yeah. So for years I ran call centers, um, you know, until my addiction kind of took over and, you know, I didn't, uh, uh, I continued to call in sick cause I was going with through withdrawals and losing jobs, you know, kind of like, you know, what happens, um, during our addiction, you know, we're not able to, to keep time. Well, I should say. Um, so then when I got sober in 09, um, I had, I applied for like 22 jobs and I was turned down for every one of them. Hmm. My resume looked good interviewing skills were great but as soon as they did a background check they saw my drug charges you know from the doctor shopping and i'd get that letter in the mail that said thank you we're going to go with another qualified candidate and you know i knew exactly what it was and so my first year of sobriety was extremely tough because here i am i'm sober i'm wanting to do good i want to help take care of my family financially and nobody will hire me it was like i'm not and i wasn't a convicted felon I had a drug charge of doctor shopping and uh, then I got a job at uh, an airline that gave me a chance. And then I had a friend that I went through um, treatment with and for five years into my recovery, while well, I had some odd end jobs, I kept bugging him. I want to get in. How do I do it? How do I do it? Because I felt this bigger power that I needed to, you know, share my journey and help people. And I got a job as a supervisor tech. And I said, I remember saying, I've got, uh, you know, the record. And he's like, well, that's your education for this. Like, you know, we welcome the record because this is the people you're going to deal with. 
and so you just have, you know, and I was like, oh, wow, you know, I found my, my family and my calling and um, that started in 2014. And, uh, you know, I went through a different few different places, started out as a tech and then admissions and marketing and just kind of moved my way up. And along those times doing interventions um, and uh, now I'm the president of uh, and partner of business development at Akasha Recovery and we're just outside of San Diego, California. And uh, also, you know, the Living Recovery Interventions, my own personal intervention company. Well, that's that that's quite the that's quite the full circle. You know, that's pretty yeah. awesome. Or I guess the 180 would be more appropriate. Yeah, yeah. that's fantastic. Congratulations. Um, thank you. Thank and you. I just want to remind anyone that's watching or listening, um, you are welcome to send us uh, if you're on Facebook Live. We would love it if you would uh, send us some questions or comments or tell us what's going on and what you're thinking. And um, we have a bunch of questions that we're going to ask Travis today, and then we're going to talk about that intervention concept and how that works. But if you have questions, we are we are here to help you as well. That's that's our whole goal is to help the families that are struggling with the loved ones who are struggling with addiction. Um, yeah. So. Okay, so that's how that's that that's what you do for a living, and that's how you got into what you do. And what, what let's start with. I think like the first question that kind of comes to my mind is very much along the lines of when I work with families. Initially, what we talk about is you know I teach them how to set some boundaries and say we're going to try what I call Plan A for thirty days, and right. we're going to hold boundaries and drugs and alcohol, work in school, and behavior at home. And so let's just assume that those didn't go well. Or, or the person is like in your say, like your case, using opiates or hard drugs, and and thirty days could kill them. Um, right. You know, okay. So then it becomes time to pick an interventionist. So, what what are the qualities they should look for, and and what is an intervention? Right. Well, and I just want to touch back on you know I love how you do that family um, the family dynamics because I've been married twenty seven years to my beautiful amazing wife. And during my addiction, the first 12 or 13 years, she didn't have, she didn't know who to reach out to. She didn't know what to do. And she just saw her husband kind of just imploding, you know, and the family dynamics kind of imploding. And it was all, you know, because of me. So it's great to have that support to get the guidance because she's just like, how can you be addicted to pills if your doctor is prescribing them? Like, I don't understand that. So the education part is huge. Um, so I just want to touch on that. So thank you for all you do on that front end. Thank I you. really appreciate thank that. You. Family is is a big deal. Now, um, to answer your question, you know, interventions, you know, when you get to the place that, you know, your loved one is just out of control, you know, we, we talk about the boundaries and setting the boundaries. But, you know, when I was in my addiction, I was a boundary tester. <laughs> you know what I mean? I constantly was pushing that envelope. Uh, because I was also a master manipulator. You know, I, I, I was all about getting what I needed to get to stay from getting dope sick, you know. Um, and if you've never gone through that, it's hard to understand. You know, you really feel like you're going to die. And so that consumes your brain is I need this and everybody becomes a resource, right? Yeah. Now, when you're reaching out to find an interventionist, I, I truly believe, uh, and this is just me, um, because I've been through it and I understand the whole family dynamics. I think that's a key, um, you know, and when I have a family call me, 
You know, I want to know the history of the family. I want to know who that individual is closest to. I want to know her mom and dad enabling. Who's the who are the, who's the one enabling? Because it's always one of them that's either sneaking the money and thinking they're doing the right thing, um, or allowing them to live in the basement and you know do what they want, no consequences, paying their cell phone, paying their car payments. Um, so I want to first of all see if I connect with the family. Give them my website, you know, at livingrecoveryinterventions.com. They can read a little bit about me. And then, um, you know, it's kind of an, just an interview process. Here's what I do. Also, you know, what's the age of the person that you want to do an intervention on? Um, I do a better job of, I'll be honest, 25 and up. Um, that's okay. my key um, demographics. Uh, 18 to 24 probably maybe somebody that could be a little younger or older, you know, that could come in and do that. Um, and then also, are they a professional? Because if they're a professional, do we want to do an invitational intervention where we invite them to sit down and have a family discussion because the family's concerned? Or do we do a surprise intervention? So there's all these key factors we have to play into that. So, so the family calls you and so it sounds like you have like an interview process that you start with the information gathering, data gathering. Because a lot of the families I work with, one of the, what they want to know is, well, what does he do? What, what does an interventionist do? So, so walk us through each step. So the phone call, you know, we go over what the situation is, um, you know, what that looks like. And, you know, as you know, when, the families are calling me, we're at a place that we've got to get something set up pretty quick if I'm the right fit for that family. Mm -hmm. um, because I, as you said, you know, every day is just kind of a ticking time bomb, you know, and so we want to intervene as soon as possible. Um, so, I, you know, family history, um, work history, I find out there's legal history. Do they have guns in the house? Um, there's all these kinds of things that we have to make sure that it's safe for everybody you know, and to set that intervention up. So, okay, so you've gathered the data, then what happens? Mm -hmm. So gather the data and then, you know, we talk about, you know, I send them out my contract and then we set, you know, where's the place we're gonna do the intervention? Where's the family feel safe? Um, you know, I have a different map. I like to keep it at five or less in an intervention because okay. I don't want that person to feel too overwhelmed, right? And it's mm -hmm. always the key people. Um, who does that inter, you know, who's that person connect to the most? I have them, you know, I fly in, sit with the family for a few days. We go over and I have them write letters. And I always like to do an intervention from a place of love. Um, that's just how I feel. We're already, when we're stuck in addiction, we're already beat down. We already feel horrible about ourselves. We don't need some, you know, to pile on top of that. So we go through the letters and I'll have like, you know, brother, sister, um, read their letter first. Um, mm -hmm. I save who they're connected to at the very end. They're the ones that are going to ask them, if, you know, for if they'll accept the help. So we'll go through the letters. And the way I have the letters, I want them to bring up some of the history, some of the fun events that they've had with their loved one, what they miss about them. And of course, you know, it's, it's an emotional experience. And what I love about the letters is there's no interruptions because there's no eye contact. Right. Mm -hmm. So that individual sits there and listens to each person go through the letters, talking about what they miss, what they love, talk about at the end, the boundaries they're going to set, um, which is the hardest part. But 
they have to be on board with boundaries with me. Um, Because if not, we're going to continue to aid in helping them die. Then the last person, um, so, you know, if it's mom that that individual is connected to or the wife, you know, emotionally, I'll have them go through their letter. And at the very end, they'll ask them if they will accept this help. Now, you know, we obviously want them to say yes. And I've got the treatment center set up. We've got um, transportation set up. We've got all of that already done, whether they're doing insurance driven or cash pay. Um, And then also, depending on what that person's needs are, you know, I give them three of the best treatment centers, get them in contact um, with them. And then I have the family help choose what's best for their loved one, whether it's mental health focused, trauma focused, um, you know, if there's bipolar involved or whatnot, um, and that's how yeah. we go through the process. Got it. Got it. Got it. So, hey, I, one thing I realized is that we kind of skipped over a question that I had come up with earlier was, and I think this is really critical for the families that are watching this or listening to this. How do they know when it's time for an intervention? I mean, that I hear this a lot. Well, you know, they're only going to get sober when they want to get sober. You know, and and what is that? And how? how I mean, yeah. I, and I'm I always I hate that. I always I look that makes me so uncomfortable. It's like, <gasps> no, you know, yeah. this day and age with the with the kind of stuff we're dealing with the fentanyl and the opiates, um, you know, Scary. they'll die before that happens. So so how does a family know when it's time to step to step in and call you? Well, you know, we always talk about everybody has to reach their bottom, and as the longer I've been doing this, um, I think our goal now is to to raise bottom right so continue to provide resources help for the family rather than just letting them dig deeper um so when a family reaches out right there i'm you know and listening to the story that's time for intervention like you're reaching out to me so you're scared there's issues going on that it's out of control they're not listening and as we know when families try to do this by themselves all it is is arguing you know, arguing and manipulation and I've got this and don't worry about me and I'm okay, right? So mm-hmm. that's just part of the process, the, the, addict, the addict kind of the behavior. So I, you know, I talk to the family and go, I've been there, I get it, okay? I understand right now they're in a place where they don't know how to ask for help. They're kind of a, a Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde is how I explain myself when I was in my addiction, they're two different people. You might see the one person one day and think, oh, I've got my son, my daughter, whoever back. They're doing great. The next day, they're just verbally abusive. They're not doing well. They're laying in bed. They're sick. So if you start losing jobs, money's disappearing, things are getting pawned, overdoses, things like that, interventions need to be involved immediately. Yeah, I always tell people, you know, I, I, it's always fun, interesting when I work with the family because, you know, the family, like you described, right? There's, there, let's say there's three or four family members and it's that classic story of, you know, four people see a car accident and they all have a different story, you know, right. and everyone sees yeah. it differently. And generally there's one person that's willing to say, no, this isn't their first time, you know, no, this is, you know, we've had this problem for the last 10 years. I mean, there's always this belief system within the structure of the family where someone's going to pull back and be like, well, well, you know, maybe it really isn't that bad. And then there's always the other person that's like, no, 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 we need to do this yesterday. You know? So, so I always tell the families, look, 
you know, it never hurts to call and talk to me and it never hurts to call and talk to an interventionist and just, you know, just, just have that conversation and hear them out. And, you know, we'll tell you, Hey, look, you know, you know, it's, you know, they're like, like to hear the things we look for. Are they, are they losing jobs? Is there money missing? Are they missing work? Are the, you know, are the kids being left at places? Are, are, is there a series and a history of it, yeah. issues and, you know, that sort of thing. So, yeah, you no, know, I get it. And, and I feel like my job is to just be honest and real um, with these families, you know, and sometimes they're just like, well, I don't know. And this or that. And I'll finally get to the point. And this might seem harsh, but this is a reality. Are you prepared to bury your loved one? I mean, because it's the truth. This doesn't, I mean, this disease of addiction is not a joke. And you see people now they're putting fentanyl and marijuana. Kids at parties and colleges are taking um, these pills that have fentanyl in them. This isn't a yeah. joke. This is, I mean, if you have a loved one that is not in the right place and is doing drugs, it's scary and we need to get them help because it's not going to continue to get better. It doesn't go away by itself. I mean, it does come up with the three options and that's recovery, prison from doing something horribly or they're going to pass away, you know, and funerals are 15 to 20 grand. Then you got to look at the fact. And this is what I always tell family. You know, the intervention, the goal is obviously to get the loved one to accept help. But at the end of the day, we're setting the boundary. We're setting the boundary that if something does happen, you know, as a loved one, you've done everything you can to help them, you know, and my goal like you is to also help that family. Once the loved one accepts the help, family has to be on board with getting therapy themselves because when that person comes home, that family dynamics is not healed and not progressing in the right way. Yeah, I always say that if the if the family doesn't take when, when so when somebody comes to treatment and and after the intervention, if the family doesn't take that time to do their own sort of internal treatment program and change the family yeah. system, you know, we're really for for the for the for the individual that's in treatment, it's really you know it's it's dangerous for them to come home to an unchanged family system. Um, yeah. yeah. Because family, a lot of time, will just think, well, get them out of the out of the picture because they're the problem. <laughs> they don't understand. And I've dealt with this a lot where you've got a 22 or 23-year-old girl in the basement and mom's going out and buying heroin, bringing it to her because she thinks she's keeping her safe because she's not out on the streets buying the heroin. Right. I mean, I run into that all the time. I, I do too. And I, and I tell, and I, and I, I loved what you said earlier. Cause, and I, 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 you know, one of the things that I'm not shy about is I, I always say, you know, look, I want to be clear with you how this ends. Okay. They're yeah. dead and you're at a funeral. This doesn't, you know, and that's where the name of the book came from, by the way, my, the, and the Institute, the chronic hope Institute is that what I found was these families have this chronic hope, right? That tomorrow, that person's going to wake up and be like, oh, my God, what am I doing? And I, yeah. I've got to quit doing drugs and and I'm just going to I'm going to straighten up and fly right. And, and oh, my gosh. And and, you know, the truth is that's never going to happen. And no. and, and you, you have to be willing to say that to the family. Like, look, this is life and death. I want you to be clear. That's never going to happen. And they're going to die. And 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 then I, then what you just said, I love what people say that is they. Well, you know, if I kick them out of the house, Kevin, they're going to go out on the street and get under the bridge and shoot dope and die. I'm like, they're already doing that. You're just facilitating it. 
you know yeah, you're so, giving them a landing a place to land and be safe with food and why why do they want to change there's no motivation whatsoever you know and 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 that's really the big piece so absolutely hey tell us a little bit about akasha recovery so akasha recovery um again we're so we're in cardiff california um, uh-huh. just outside just 20 minutes outside of san diego six bed um detox full detox uh residential co-ed we allow pets or dogs and uh, it's anywhere from 30 to 90 days um insurance at a network or cash pay and you know it's a holistic approach it is you know we want to meet you where you're at so once you get detox and come in and start being able to think a little more clearly what does the recovery journey look like for you whether it's your first time or your third time you know, my goal is I don't ever want to see you again unless it's in an alumni event, <laughs> right? So yeah. we're going to do this right, and it's gonna, we're going to do it as long as it takes. And because uh, it takes a long time for some people to open up. Uh, when I went to treatment, you know, I spent 95 days, you know, because the first 30 days, it was all these other people that had been there a while yeah. doing mm-hmm. their thing, and they were getting to graduate. And I just had to start feeling like, you know, how, when do I open up? Um, and, uh, you know, most of us have to do a lot of mirror work is what I call it because I didn't love myself. Um, you know, and I didn't know who I was when I went to treatment. And so, Mm -hmm. you know, everybody, I think could take this opportunity to do, uh, you know, a stint for themselves and figure out who they are. Um, but you know, you got to open up about your trauma and you got to open up because as we both know, substance abuse is just that band-aid of some underlying issues that have taken place. Um, and you got to figure out, you know, why do I continue to drink? Why do I continue to take pills? What is it about that that makes me feel better? And, you know, we want to do some mindfulness and do a little, you know, trauma work and, you know, figure out what's going on and it, how, we, how do we support you? Is it a 12-step base? Is it this? Um, we want to get the family involved because, you know, it's a big deal. We need to get everybody on this path of healing. For me, I had to get my wife. Once I took care of me, then I had to go through and do work with my wife and my kids because I passed down some generational trauma through my addiction to them. I don't want them to pass that on to my grandkids. So I'm willing to do whatever it takes to help them. And that's how I go into it with everybody. That, that gives me a call. Um, you know, I'm the one that answers all the phones for Akasha, um, gives you guidance, explains the process and what we're gonna do. Um, Ron is the executive director, he's there every day. He's been a therapist for 25 years, very hands-on and again, six beds. So it's very intimate and you get a lot of one-on-one time. I love it, that's fantastic. Now, now, yeah. do you guys also do like a family program? We do, yep, the, we, do, we, do, like? we do, we do it. We do it right well. We do it more individually right now um, okay. with the therapist on, um, you know, over the, the computer instead of Zoom because of uh, COVID. It's changed things a little bit. Sure. Um, so, yeah. So, as things, you know, because we always want to make sure the client comes first and the client safety. So, we, we don't want people in and out of the facility just during this time, but we make sure that they're involved. That's fantastic. And I think one of the key points that I just heard you say that I'm going to repeat and probably repeat over and over, people can bring their dog. 
You yes. <laughs> that is critical. I, I, I get asked that question all the time. You know, that's, yeah. that's fantastic. Um, and we'll also do couples. Um, so I've started experiencing this. Now, when I mean couples, so we had one that they were married. They uh -huh. got addicted together. Okay. They have kids together. So they're going to be in each other's lives forever. So right. we'll take that chance. No, they don't share the same room. They have different rooms. People ask that okay. all the time. Um, but we want to see if, okay, they're going to be together. Let's see if we can heal this relationship because they have kids. Now, if it gets to where it's not healthy, we will refer one out, right? Sure. And split them up. But, you know, they're going to be, if they're going to be together, let's try to make it work. And also, when I say couples, it's not that they met somebody in another rehab or, or things like that. Um, it's no. they've been together before, they're married, they, they have kids, they have, in, they're invested in each other. So yeah. I think that's a key yeah. thing too. Yeah, it's an established relationship and yeah. an addiction is a part of the family system and it needs to be dealt with and handled. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. No, I get it. That's fantastic. That's, that's, yeah. I mean, I love it. That's wonderful. Um, that's amazing. And because yeah. I'm my, my belief system, I mean, like we talked about earlier, is that if we're not treating the family system while we're treating the individual, we're, we're really missing a huge, significant piece of the puzzle. And, right. and you know, I mean, it's really funny. I was at NATAP a couple of weeks ago. And I was talking to my friend, Dr. Michael Barnes from the Foundry, who's one of the foremost family trauma addiction guys. Um, and, and he and I were agreeing on the concept that, you, you know, this, this methodology that we've come up with of taking the one person that struggles with substance abuse and removing them from the family system for 30, 60, 90 days, and then bringing them back and wondering why they relapse is insane. You know, it's it, it, it doesn't make any sense at all. I mean, yeah. it, it, I mean, if anything, what we really if we could go back and do treatment all over again, we would say, give us the whole family. Yeah, <laughs> everybody's coming, you know, and then you're going here, people, you're going here because, yeah, yeah, what happens is what happened to me is that you come home. I've gone off and done a spiritual journey and done a lot of this different work. And then you come home and nothing's changed for that individual right. so the past gets brought up and things get brought up and you haven't worked through them and then the person that's in early recovery it's just a lot to deal with because they think they're coming home to okay things are going to get better let's move forward yep. yep you know i'm no longer that person i'm a new and improved person but that family person's hurting and i think that's why a lot of divorces a lot why there's just such a high relapse rate you know we, my wife and I, you know, I, I want her to get on and start talking more too, because that doesn't happen a lot. You know, the, the two staying together and working through it and, and, and trying our best to fix that family dynamics and that family system, which we've, we've done. Um, you know, it's a process and it's always going to be a working process every day, but we're continuing to show up and, you know, I know what I've done and I know what I've caused and I own that. Right. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the first thing. Now it's, how did I hurt you? How, you know, what do we need to work through? I, I remember doing work with my son. Um, I think it was like, I think I was four years in recovery. Mm -hmm. And I remember sitting down and the first thing he said is, do you love me? And I was like, what, what do you mean? He thought that he was the reason why I was the way I was. Yeah. And I want to make that clear to anybody watching or any kids watching that have adult, you know, parents that are addicts, it's not your fault. 
you know, you're not the reason why we use. It is our issues and our underlying trauma, our underlying, you know, defects or what, however you want to put it. But it's not the kid's fault, um, you know. And so yeah. I had to make sure he understood that it had nothing to do with you. But I didn't know that if we hadn't done the work. Makes perfect sense. And the only thing I would say, I, I, I think we're in agreement, but um, I, I actually am of the belief that that people are addicts and alcoholics through their genetics. And, and, mm -hmm. and I don't believe you can create someone into addiction. Um, and, and that, but that trauma and mental health issues certainly can expedite the process because I yeah. know plenty of people that have trauma and mental health issues that don't pick substance abuse, you know? But, but for those of us that do pick substance abuse or self-medication or whatever you want to call it, there's just a percentage of us that can't pull out once we start, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And, and, I agree with you. And that's addiction. I mean, that's just the, I mean, for people in my industry, you know, for the, for the, the clinicians, we're always trying to, to piece, the, piece the connections or the puzzles together or the equation of, well, what happened that made you start using that made you an addict? And it's like, no, 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 no. <laughs> I'm an addict. I was an addict when I was born. That was, yeah. you know, I, now did I have stuff that happened to me? Oh yeah, absolutely. But you know, what turns out is we start to better understand the knowledge and understand of trauma and mental health relationships. Turns out everybody has that. Everybody has stuff, but yeah. not everybody starts using and not everybody can't stop using. So yeah, that, that's yeah, kind of where that side was all. My dad's side was all opiate addicts and my mom's side alcohol. So, yeah. and I didn't know my dad growing up. So I made a very, I was very cautious about, I'm going to stay away from alcohol. But I didn't know that his whole side of the family were opiate addicts. And then what do I become? An opiate addict. <laughs> yeah, of course. You know? Exactly. Yeah. But, I, you know, and, 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 and thank God you're clean and sober. And, and, and thank God that you're, you know, you're giving back and contributing. Well, you know. I'm all out of questions. I, <laughs> you've done a great <laughs> job of answering all my questions. You've explained when a family should come in, uh, call an interventionist, what they should expect from the interventionist, what the intervention will look like, and then what, what they need to do after the intervention. You've, you've answered all my questions. I, I nice. couldn't be any happier. Well, you know, there's one thing I'd like to add in there as well that I kind of just put in with uh, when I do the interventions is I'll let the family know whatever program is set up by the clinician, I always say that, well, how long do I got to go? That's up to you and the clinician. You got to figure that out. That's not my, you know, that's not my job. I don't know what you need to work on because I'm not a clinician. Um, but what I tell them is that you complete that program, then I will do 90 days of continued coaching for you when you're after, because I want to be part of that after part, you know, because yeah. we always just go into the chaos, right? which I feel like I'm good at and I'm good at bringing the families together because I've been through that and my life has been a lot of, you know, chaos and they're scared. The family is so scared and they just don't know what to do. So once you bring them together, I like to let them know, you know what, once you graduate your program, then I will stay on and do 90 days of coaching with you and help you because as we both know, that's such an important piece. Now, hopefully they go on and do, a sober living and outpatient and do some extended care um, because we see better results when they do that. Um, and then the family's doing the work, but I love that. I love throwing that in. You do this 
And, uh, and I think that was a big goal. I, I connected with this 18 year old kid in the state of Washington. And, uh, at first he didn't like me, but I, you know, once I got to know him a little bit, I said, you know what, you graduate this program and I will come see you. And I will also work with you for 90 days after to continue. He's like, really? So, you know, I, I like that. Whatever it takes to continue to help people is what it's about. Amen. I couldn't, I could not agree with you more. Yeah. And, 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 and as a shameless, shameless self-promotion item, the family, uh, you know, what, what, that's why we offer both of my books for free. And, and we're currently, uh, on both the chronic hope books at chronichopebook.com are offered available right now for free. And we also offer a $97 course, uh, on family case management. On, on, and it's something that the idea is that, when you drop that person off at a cost of recovery, now the family has something they can engage with and, and start to understand what's going on. And it answers a lot of their questions and really gets into the, the dynamics of what's going on within the structure of the family, why the family has to change. And they can do it at their pace and, and they can do it at their time frame while their person is in treatment and then hopefully have a successful reunification process. Yeah. So. Yeah. I highly recommend look, look up, get, get those books. Um, like Kevin said, they're free and look at what he offers. It's amazing. Um, and it's needed. You know, I think we all have a piece that's needed and, uh, we, I, you know, I, I talk about this all the time, but 2020 has changed. I think the direction and it's, uh, you know, it's, it's not something that's going to go away. I believe, and tell me if I'm wrong, but in 2020, I think alcohol sales went up 320 percent. I was with the advent of, you know, I mean, I, I was I was half of me was amused and the other half of me was terrified when I saw all the things pop up on social media of, of hey, the liquor store is closed, but we'll come to you in an hour. We'll be there yeah. in an hour. You know, I was like, oh, oh, that's not good, <laughs> you know, and. And then so many people were isolating and so many people were not, you know, engaging with others, which it had, it was a double-edged sword. It allowed people to hide out and isolate, yeah. but people that were part of families, it kind of forced them to, um, you know, all of a sudden you're home with this person 24 seven. You're like, Oh, you have a problem, yeah. you know, and we need help. So, well, well I you appreciate know, your time. Oh, go yeah, ahead. Absolutely. Oh, I was just going to say, you know, I, I remember here in Utah going past the liquor stores, lines. And my wife goes, why is there so many lines? I said, because it's considered an essential business. Do you know what would happen if they shut liquor stores down and people started getting sick and having seizures? The hospitals and ERs are overfilled with COVID. They had to keep the liquor stores open to keep people from dying and going into seizures. I mean, yep. that's the reality of it. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, and I don't know if you remember in Colorado, uh, initially, the governor said, we're going to close the liquor stores and we're going to close the pot dispensaries. And within oh, 24 wow. hours, he had pulled that back. And he's like, yeah, no, we're not going to do that. You know? yep. <laughs> it's like, well, yep. you know, so absolutely. I appreciate your time, sir. Thank you. Yeah, you bet. It's good to have you. And you know what I was thinking, too, at some point, I would, I would love here if your wife would be open to it. I would love to interview your wife about sort of to get her perspective on, on oh, what yeah. it was all like. Absolutely, she's a little yeah. shy, but I push her. She's been on, she's been on a few of them because the other side, of the family needs to hear from 
families who've gone through it. And it's an important message that she's got to share. Yeah. Well, if she's yeah. comfortable, I, I never want to make anyone uncomfortable. So, no. but cool. In, in this setting, you do a great job, Kevin. I'm sure she'd be more than willing to do it. <laughs> okay. Thanks. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, I appreciate your time. Hey, gang, thanks for tuning in to the Chronico podcast. Uh, you know, we're going to do it again next month uh, in January. And, uh, and, and we're going to have another special surprise guest. We'll start advertising who that's going to be and what that's going to be about. In the meantime, you know, please go ahead and uh, like the podcast and download the podcast. Give us a five-star rating. You know, go to YouTube and catch, catch us on YouTube and Spotify. We're, uh, the Chronic Hope Institute has a Facebook group, um, and we would love to have you as part of our Facebook group. And, and we're going to start instituting more Facebook Lives. And one of the things that I want to be clear is that you can, you can send us questions on all of those social media formats. We're on Instagram. We're on uh, Twitter. Um, you can send us questions, and we will answer your questions. Our goal is to help you. And, you know, totally for free. The books are free. Everything's for free. We're, we're here to help. We want the families to understand that there's a resource available to everybody and anybody. And, and but until then, happy holidays, happy new year. And, and thanks again, Travis. Really appreciate your time. Absolutely. Thanks, Kevin. I appreciate it. Okay. Thank you for listening to the Chronic Hope Institute podcast with your host, Kevin Peterson. Please join us again next time. We exist to provide support, education, and hope for families who are struggling with addiction and codependency. Remember to connect with us on Facebook, as well as subscribe to the Chronic Hope Institute podcast on YouTube, Spotify, Apple, or wherever you listen to podcasts. See you again soon.